Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 35, A Prison of the Nations. So, uh, four weeks ago, we left off discussing the economic and military situation in Russia on the eve of the new year. Through the efforts of the pragmatic Alexander Guchkov in the War Industries Committee, the deficiencies in Russia's war effort were quickly identified. Changes in political, financial, and military spheres brought a new crop of leaders who were determined to put Russia back on the right foot. Gone were the old aristocrats like Vladimir Sukhomanov and the Grand Duke Nicholas, replaced with more competent ministers like Mikhail Alexeyev and Alexei Pulivanov. Industry and factory output would increase steadily throughout the year, and by mid-1916, Russia's war economy had begun to catch up to her Entente allies. Shell production tripled, from 358,000 to over 1.5 million, while the army's 2 million men in uniform received basic literacy training in many faucets, such as map reading, gun trajectory, and wireless communication. By the summer of 1916, Russia's army would again take the field, better organized and better prepared than they had ever been. In order to follow up our discussion from that last episode, I want to spend this week talking about the other Eastern power, which, like Russia, found itself succumbing to internal dissension at the start of 1916, and that of course being Austria-Hungary. So what was happening in the dual monarchy? Well, when we last talked about them, Conrad's forces had ridden shotgun to Falkenheit's eastern campaign, which had recovered much of the territory lost in the previous year. Taking them from Glacia and down into Serbia, the campaign of 1915 had effectively erased the memory of those earlier blunders in 1914. But there was no denying that for Conrad von Hutzendorf, the string of successes came with a bitter pill. Total casualties from 1914 amounted to 2.1 million men, killed, wounded, or missing, which included 57,000 of the Empire's multilingual officers, irreplaceable losses in the cultural mosaic of the Habsburg army. With the Germans and Bulgarians taking the lion's share of the credit for the operation in Serbia, Conrad was also faced with a new enemy, Italy, which had entered the war against the Habsburgs on May the 23rd. Italy's declaration of war had given the Austrians a much-needed boost. As we saw before, no love was lost between the two rival states. Both shared aspirations in the Balkans, and Rome sought territorial gains at Vienna's expense. But even with this long-overdue showdown just off the horizon, Conrad found little consolation. His relationship with Erich von Falkenhayn had slipped by the wayside. In November 1915, Conrad had lectured the German on the importance of continuing the combined offensive. The performance of Habsburg troops in the Isonzo had hinted to Conrad that Italy's army was ill-equipped and would stand no chance against the pooled weight of the central powers. But as we know, Falkenhayn was in no mood to entertain such visions of grandeur, and the German chief's skepticism was well-placed. Conrad's plan, which called for an all-out assault from Tyrol in the direction of Venice, would have required more resources and manpower than Falkenhayn was willing to spare. Even if Conrad's ambitious plan worked, and knocked Italy from the war, Falkenhayn knew it would have done little to weaken the war-making abilities of France or Britain. Falkenhayn retorted during one of their last face-to-face -face meetings that the Central Powers did not have the luxury of expending themselves on what he called secondary theaters. In short, if the Italians were as weak as Conrad estimated, then he should have no trouble handling them himself. With no assistance coming from the Germans, the Turks occupied in Mesopotamia, and the Bulgarians happy to sit back and watch the gong show at Salonika, Austria-Hungary was going to face 1916 alone, 
Undeterred, Conrad was eager to show his critics, both abroad and at home, that the Habsburg forces could still operate as an independent force. By early January 1916, a quick conquest of Montenegro and Albania, following the occupation of Serbia, had the reverse effect of what Conrad intended. Falkenheim was furious, calling the occupation of the two countries a deliberate land grab and compared Conrad to an open sore in the Habsburg name. This insult, later echoed by the Prussian Minister of War, Veerd von Huchenborn, who, writing in late 1915, recalled, quote, It does not matter a hoot to us whether Italy hacks another piece off the tail of the dying camel Austria, end quote. As expected, Conrad did not respond to these insults with open arms. For him, Falkenhayn was as slippery as an eel, and continually took pleasure reminding the Germans that it was their defeat on the Marne which had gotten the alliance into this mess in the first place. The fact that Falkenhayn had not been in charge at the Marne seems to have been lost on the Austrian chief. So this was the position the Austro-Hungarians found themselves in early 1916. Their alliance with Germany was just hanging by a thread. And for nearly a month, neither Conrad nor Falkenheim spoke to one another. Each were consumed in planning their own operations, the Germans with Verdun, and the Austrians for Conrad's invasion of Italy. But what I want to talk about today has nothing to do with the military front. We'll save that until next time. What I do want to talk about has to do with the empire itself. Namely, the growing divide between the Austrian and Hungarian halves. Now, we haven't talked at all about what the dual monarchy really was how it operated politically, or which half was in charge of what. Part of the reason was because I didn't have the appropriate sources, and thus didn't really understand it myself. But for lack of a better term, Vienna and Budapest had always found ways to keep their affairs in order. It wasn't always pretty, but to avoid being lost in the inertia, it was easier to steer clear of the domestic problems for the sake of the narrative. However, by early 1916, it was undeniable that things were coming to a head. The home front was in turmoil. Food shortages, skyrocketing prices, and a major influx of Glacian refugees had strained the already overloaded system. In short, the dual monarchy was a mess. To illustrate this, we're going to spend this week talking about the empire's domestic problems. Specifically, the issue of keeping the empire's ethnic minority groups from all-out revolt against the Habsburg crown. With popular support at home beginning to waver, and the war bills piling up, the dual monarchy was facing a sink-or-swim situation, and it would take some careful maneuvering to avoid full-out catastrophe. So to begin, I want to draw attention to the fact that of all the belligerents, Austria-Hungary faced a problem unique to itself. No other state had such a smorgasbord of ethnicities and linguistic groups, making the dual monarchy perhaps the most complex and confusing nation-state in Europe. Within its domain fell no fewer than 11, Yes, 11 minority groups, each of which fiercely protected local customs and religious affiliation. At the top of the pyramid, the largest ethnic groups were, of course, Austrian-German and Magyar-Hungarians, who together made up about 50% of the total population. But beneath that, you had Czechs, Poles, Romanians, Croats, Slovaks, Serbs, Italians, Ukrainians, and the oft-unmentioned Muslim Slavs following the annexation of Ottoman provinces like Bosnia and Herzegovina. In a period of intense nationalism, one could be forgiven for thinking that so many ethnic groups under one roof was a disaster waiting to happen. And indeed, it had nearly come to that. As we saw way back in our first episodes, the old Austrian Empire had just barely survived the revolts of 1848, largely thanks to Russia's well-timed intervention against the rebellious Hungarians. Then, after that close shave, 
came the defeat at the hands of Prussia, which resulted in the 1867 compromise with the Hungarians. The old empire of Austria was transformed, and was henceforth known as Austria-Hungary. In the years following the 1867 compromise, the two halves of the empire rarely had anything to do with one another. Both had their own prime ministers and elected parliaments, and neither had the authority to intervene in the sovereign affairs of the other. Tax collections, policing, food distribution, court systems, curriculum, and the armed forces were independently looked after by Vienna and Budapest. But it's important to keep in mind that the entire political apparatus was built upon a compromise, and in that sense, the dual monarchy was constantly locked in negotiation. Universal suffrage, for example, had always been a sticky issue between the two capitals. Vienna had granted universal male suffrage back in 1907, while Budapest continued to drag its feet, where just 6% of the population had voting rights. The Hungarian Prime Minister, Istvan Tissa, was unwilling to entertain nationalist sympathies and practiced a heavy hand in suppressing the sovereigntist movements of the Hungarian Slavs, particularly the Romanians and Ukrainians. The Hungarians had enjoyed the benefits of the compromise. It allowed them to run their own affairs and maintain near total independence. But at the same time, Budapest refused to recognize similar demands among its own nationalist groups. But while the two halves largely stuck to their own affairs, there was a common council, which in theory was supposed to be the deciding body on imperial concerns. The common council of ministers, headed by the elected PMs and the royally appointed ministers of finance, foreign affairs, and war, was a broken system which never truly worked. The common council had met just three times between 1913 and August 1914, and each meeting had failed to produce anything tangible. The common ministers, war, finance, and foreign affairs, could only act once consent was given by both PMs, and at the same time, the PMs cannot act unless parliamentary votes were in their favor. This is why Austria-Hungary had managed to avoid war during the Bosnian annexation crisis and the Balkan Wars. Issues of foreign affairs had to jump through some pretty tight hoops before any decisions could be made. But at the other end of all the bureaucracy, the single guiding voice was the emperor, Franz Joseph, who was almost universally respected among his people. Joseph, who by 1916 was 86 years of age, was in ill health, and there was no denying there were concerns over his succession. Having come to the throne back in 1848, for an impressive 68 years in power, Franz Joseph held supreme authority over military and foreign concerns. Having ruled for over two generations, most of the empire's inhabitants had known no other monarch, and had developed a deep affection for the aging emperor. Since July 1914, however, Joseph had exercised his emergency decrees by suspending the Austrian parliament, turning Austria into a bureaucratic military regime, which gave Konrad von Hutzendorf near total power over the Austrian half of the monarchy. Pockets of the empire near the front, such as Bosnia, Galicia, and Silesia, were designated war zones, where military authorities had overriding control. Press censorship, forced relocations of civilians, suppression of free speech, and the abolishment of trial by jury quickly followed. Under Conrad, the war had become one of increasing home front brutality. As we already know, Conrad had for long harbored a deep resentment for the empire's Slav population, the largest being the Czechs, who made up some 13% of the total population. Because of this preconceived bigotry, Conrad had set up the War Surveillance Office, which was to act as a military watchdog against any conceived act of treason or dissension. Attached to the War Ministry in Vienna, the Surveillance Office exercised a heavy hand in policing domestic affairs throughout Austria. 
By January 1916, military courts had handled no less than 23,000 cases, a huge jump from just 2,000 in 1914. Crimes such as hoarding, draft dodging, or spreading pro-Entente propaganda were punishable by frontline service, hard labor, property confiscation, or, for repeat offenders, military firing squad. While this certainly did not help the morale of the civilians at home, most of whom were already down to 830-calorie diets by early 1916, so good luck if you had kids to feed, it gave way to another issue, which neither Vienna nor Budapest had planned for, just how they were going to refill the army ranks. Since the formation of the dual monarchy, a debate over how the armed forces should be organized had been a hot-button issue, with Budapest wanting greater autonomy from Habsburg command. In short, the Habsburg army conformed to the administrative structure of the 1867 Compromise, and thus was divided no differently than the empire itself. The reality was that there were three separate forces, which made up what historians and myself commonly umbrella as the Austro-Hungarian army. There was the common, or imperial and royal army, commanded by the monarch and joint war ministry. This was the main body of the Habsburg army, and thus the largest. But there were also independent armies, fielded by both Hungary and Austria, each of which were maintained by separate war offices located in both capitals. The biggest challenge for Habsburg administrators was how to balance the army's cohesiveness against such a multinational makeup. It was inevitable that with conscription, the ethnic and linguistic diversity of the army would widen, presenting a challenge for command and control. In his study of the Habsburg army, John Schindler breaks down that of 100 troops in the Imperial and Royal Army, you were likely to have 25 Austrians, 23 Hungarians, 13 Czechs, 9 Serbs, 8 Poles, 8 Ukrainians, 7 Romanians, 4 Slovaks, 2 Slovenes, and 1 Italian. No other nation-state in Europe, except maybe Russia, faced this issue. But while the Russians responded with draconian measures, the duo monarchy used the carrot and not the stick. While army orders were issued in German, meaning that all servicemen needed to know a list of selected words, such as march, advance, halt, and reload, regiments were organized along ethnic lines and commanded in their own languages. For example, the 13th Prague Infantry Division was made up of Czech troops with Czech-speaking officers, but there were also smaller units which deflected the diversity. Polish Lancer regiments, the Imperial Tyrolean Rifles, made up of Italians and Slovenes, and Bosnian regiments, a mix of Serbs, Croatians, and Muslim Slavs. As a further token, regiments had the option of choosing which language they wanted to be commanded in. This was trickier for mixed units, and in one case, a Bosnian-Croatian unit discovered English was the most common language, and was thus instructed in English. This meant that professional officers needed to be fluent in multiple languages. Conrad himself had mastered six, and was working on a seventh by the time the war broke out. But as we already talked about, casualties among the officer corps was uncharacteristically high. How high? Well, according to Olger Herwig, 48% of the peacetime officer corps had been killed, wounded, or missing by early 1916, a total of 57,000. The Austrian 4th Army, which had gone into Glacia in September 1914, saw 33% of its officers become Russian captives. As we discussed back in episode 18, the loss of so many trained officers was irreversible and in fact had devastated the overall morale of the army. In peacetime, life in the Habsburg army was pretty good. Enlistees saw it as a chance to escape the drudgeries of peasant life. Discipline was lapse, uniforms were colorful, food was in abundance, 
and the Habsburgs made a really bad habit of bestowing decorations on units for not really doing anything. For example, Franz Ferdinand had given a Croatian home guard unit the honorary title of the Devil's Division because they had performed well in pre-war exercises. While these pats on the back for just showing up and not blowing your foot off might have been necessary to maintain morale, it did nothing to help the state of the army's preparedness for war. So when things took a turn for the worse, the Habsburg forces, both Austrian and Hungarian, were the least prepared to meet the realities it had in store. The loss of the peacetime officers had created a vacuum in command which is nearly impossible to fill, and the army's minority groups, without representation of any kind with the suspension of the parliament, began to wonder if the whole thing was worth it. By July 1916, three Czech divisions had already been lost to desertion, confirming to Conrad just how untrustworthy the Slavs were, while in Budapest, Tissa and the Magyar leadership were concerned that Romania would launch a preemptive strike into Hungarian-held Transylvania. So this really bad mix of field losses and the increasing heavy-handedness of Conrad's war surveillance office did not bode well for the Empire's hopes. In early 1916, Conrad was in a difficult spot. In January, he admitted to a military chancery that his army was but a militia, consisting of just 30,000 officers and a fighting strength of 900,000 men with 4,500 artillery pieces. Where did these officers come from? Well, they were school teachers, police officers, or staff from army recruitment centers, office clerks and typists. Essentially anyone with any form of administrative or logistical skills were recruited into the army. Many of these freshly minted officers arrived at their units, horrified to realize they could not communicate with the men, and thus had to rely on translators, and hope to God that what they translated was correct. Now how the rank and file was replenished is a whole other story. Besides the repatriation of veterans, in which 1.3 million were put back in uniform, Conrad initially tried to recover the losses by extending conscription to those between 18 and 20 years of age. When this did not pan out, it was soon extended a second time, except now anyone between 18 and 55 years of age were liable for service. On the home front, the urban centers and rural countryside were growing tiresome of Conrad's scheming. So far, the Empire had been unable to defeat any of its enemies without German assistance, and the man responsible for the war was placing further demands on the populace which was already walking a razor-thin line. As Olga Herwig puts it, Vienna had fallen from instigator of war in 1914 to German satellite by 1915. Financially, the imperial treasury was beyond broke. Vienna had set aside 1.5 billion kronen for the war's total expenses, but this was based on the assumption that it would all be over by Christmas. By early 1916, the war had cost the monarchy 1.3 billion per month, bringing the total to about 21.2 billion by the end of 1915. And wouldn't you know it, it was the banks and wealthy industrial firms which held 60% of the war bonds. The state was already deeply in debt. In Britain, where 20% of the war was paid through taxes, just 9% was covered through taxes in the dual monarchy. Gold and silver currency soon disappeared from circulation, replaced by paper currency, but an overzealous printing schedule had devalued the paper bills almost immediately. At the same time, overall food prices were up 178% in two years, and grain shipments from Hungary were down from 1.4 million kilograms to just 464 kilograms by the winter of 1915. In Vienna, food riots had already broken out, and queues for sugar, coffee, flour, and potatoes snake their way throughout the city. In her book, Vienna in the Fall of the Habsburg Empire, 
Maureen Healy writes that the state's failure to provide for the home front had broken the implicit wartime contract between civilians and the state. To quote Healy, Home front residents had expected and were ready to accommodate inconvenience and burden, but they were not willing to passively endure hunger, illness, and even death. End quote. Rations were down to just 2.2 pounds of potato per week, tea was little more than roasted barley, and street lamps were drained for oil and kerosene. In Vienna and Prague, some even took to collecting pigeon droppings for fertilizer. Also, too, a new phenomenon, which the press soon labeled as squirreling, saw urban dwellers make trips into the countryside to steal or barter produce from farmers. By 1917, these expeditions had become regular occurrences. In short, people were fed up and pissed off. With military victories, food, and general happiness in short supply, there was one thing which the people of the empire had plenty of, and that, of course, was blame. Some blamed the British naval blockade, while others blamed Germany for not delivering what they ensured would be a quick victory. But most of the blame fell on Budapest, which did not bode well for Conrad, who insisted the only way to get over the financial debt was to deliver decisive victory. The Hungarian Prime Minister, Istvan Tissa, had watched with alarm as the Empire's military performance became increasingly dependent on whether the Germans provided assistance. For Tissa, fiercely protective of Hungary's national self-interests, saw what he feared to be the beginnings of a gradual takeover of Prussian influence in the Empire's command. This worried Tissa, because he doubted that Falkenheim, or whoever was to command this new joint office, would entertain the idea of cooperating with the Magyars. To ensure that Conrad and Vienna did not do anything too stupid, Tissa employed a shrewd tactic, which ensured Hungary would still have a seat at the table. He withheld food shipments to Austria. Now, the Hungarian decision to withhold food shipments is a pretty controversial subject for obvious reasons but Tissa had been forced to implement it for practical concerns. For one, the harvests of 1915 and 1916 were only half their normal level, so the need to ration the resource was crucial. Secondly, transportation infrastructure was a mess. Locomotives and rail cars were too busy zipping men back and forth to the front to deliver food shipments. With no locomotives to spare, rail cars already stuffed with food were left to rot, like in Trieste, where a whole shipment of rice was left exposed to the blazing sun. So getting food from one corner of the empire to the other was already problematic. The third reason relates back to the issue of the army. Hungary, the breadbasket of the empire, was largely agrarian, and thus needed farmhands to ensure its people did not go malnourished. But with Conrad's new conscription order and the 1867 compromise requiring both halves to provide a near 50-50 split in manpower, this left Tissa and Budapest in a tough spot. If more men were going into the army, who was going to be left to tend the fields? Tissa, whose first order of responsibility was to look after Hungarian affairs, managed to pull a pretty significant trick. In his meetings with the Austrian Prime Minister, Karl von Sturg, Tissa had been able to barter a real sweetheart of a deal. To replace the loss of agrarian labor to military service, the option of using Russian prisoners of war came into discussion. Since the bulk of the Russian army were peasants anyway, they were best suited for the task. However, Tissa would only agree to this if Vienna promised to foot the bill. After all, POWs needed to be guarded and kept from having contact with the Czech, Serb, or Romanian population, less risk a pan-Slavic revolt flaring up in the hinterland. Sturk, who of course had little choice, since Tissa could always threaten separate peace with the Entente, was forced to agree with the Hungarian terms. 
By the summer of 1915, some 80,000 Russian POWs tended the fields, and by the end of 1916, this number had ballooned to 1.1 million. The strain of feeding, guarding, and maintaining the camps was a further burden on the dual monarchy's finances, which resulted in both capitals turning to Berlin for financial and military aid. Now, you might be wondering, if the loss of labor was so great, why didn't the dual monarchy follow the example of the other nations and use women as a replacement labor force? Well, both halves had experimented with this, and it had mixed results. In the more industrial areas of Bohemia, getting women into the factories was proven difficult. As we saw before, rising food prices and the useless paper cronins meant that fiscal incentive was non-existent. The wages being offered to female workers were half or a third of a man's wages. But even with greater parity, no amount of time spent in a factory would keep a single employee above the waterline, especially when a single liter of milk cost half of a full day's pay. Women wanted to help out, and they volunteered in droves for agrarian fieldwork, where at least there was a guarantee of a meal and housing at the end of the day. For factory owners, this worked out well. Male workers could always be threatened with conscription, but since women were barred from active military service, there was a prevailing fear that female workers could organize labor unions and put on strikes in the name of higher wages. Women also found work in infrastructure, taking positions as tram drivers or conductors, while the women's auxiliary labor force employed 36,000 in communications and clerical work behind the line. Overall, however, there was a reluctance to employ women in the labor force of the dual monarchy. Dominated by conservative values, business owners preferred to employ adolescents or older men, and the general mood was that the best way for women to serve the war effort was to look after a soldier's home. Compared to France, where 33% of its female population found work in industry, the dual monarchy employed just 10%. As an incentive not to enter the workforce, Emperor Franz Joseph van Conrad established a compensation program for wives and widows, which was funded through property seizures by the War Surveillance Office. This had little impact. Allowances were less than one would get in a factory, and of course, due to the monetary crunch, incredibly tedious to get the proper qualifications. For example, a Czech widow was likely to be turned away because of a predisposed suspicion of the Slav population. Many women simply ignored any monetary compensation and took up volunteer posts with the Red Cross. So, to wrap this all up, it was no secret that the clock was ticking for the dual monarchy. But Konrad von Hutzendorf still held to the belief that the only way to ease the financial and social burdens of the empire was to deliver a decisive victory on the battlefield. For him, there was simply no other option. Breakthroughs in France and in the Italian theater could possibly end the war, and thus allow the central powers to levy reparation payments on the defeated Entente. In February 1916, Conrad got the kick in the ass he needed when Falkenhayn unleashed his campaign at Verdun. Falkenhayn had not notified Conrad of his intentions until the very eve of the attack, which further incensed the Austrian. Conrad completely disagreed with his counterpart's strategy of attrition, arguing it was a total waste of resources which could be put to better use elsewhere. But even he had to admit that strategically, Austria-Hungary was in the best possible position. Russia and Serbia had been dealt with, and by and large, the entire Balkan Peninsula had been placated, leaving Conrad the luxury of focusing all his remaining military strength against the much-hated Italians. But like we saw last week, in the wake of the German attack at Verdun, Joffe had sent calls to France's allies for relief offensives. The Russians had responded catastrophically at Lake Naroch, 
and on March the 11th, the Italians reopened the Isonzo campaign with the 5th Battle of the Isonzo. Throughout the winter, the Austrian commander in the Isonzo sector, Svetovar Borovich, had used the lull in the fighting to improve his defenses and launch probing strikes against the Italian lines. One such foray managed to snag 1,200 prisoners of war. This had all hinted to Conrad that Cardona's men were at their breaking point, and the 5th Battle of the Isonzo confirmed his predisposition. After a two-day artillery bombardment of 1,300 guns, the Italians attacked along the same front they had in earlier attempts. The attacking infantry, having commenced the assault on March the 13th, found themselves charging through snow, ice, and fog. For much of the attack, visibility was down to less than 5 feet. Just three days later, Cardona recognized the attack had run its course and called a halt. But compared to earlier Rizzonzo battles, casualties for both sides were relatively light. While the 5th Battle of the Zonzo, March the 11th to the 16th, produced nothing of note, in its aftermath, Conrad made a few key moves which would prove to have major strategic implications. Conrad's plan, to strike the Italians from Tyrol and drive towards Venice, required him to recall units from the other fronts. Since it was assumed that Russia was no longer a threat, the Austrian chief had begun to peel off several divisions from Glacia, particularly in the sector of Bukovina near the border of Romania in the Ukraine. Conrad's gamble to pool his resources against Italy was his attempt to win the war, but instead would be his nation's last independent adventure. When the Russians, under Alexei Brusilov, tore into Bukovina on June the 4th, the Empire of Austria-Hungary was broken beyond repair, and for the remainder of the war would be little more than a German puppet. In the next episode, we're going to look at what happened during Conrad's Tyrolean gamble, but also to catch up with the Italians in their ongoing campaign. From Conrad's opening attack on May the 15th, the war on all fronts, both on land and at sea, will flare up with an intensity not seen since 1914. Battles in Italy, Bukovina, France, and in the North Sea would stage the firepower of the two alliance camps against one another, and whoever emerged victorious would ultimately win the war. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you will find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Questions, comments, and suggestions are always more than welcome. I would like to extend a heartfelt thank you to listener Robert Law from London, England, who recently donated to the show. Thank you very much, good sir, and I did respond to your email, so be sure to check your spam folder when you get a minute. If you want to be like Robert and our other generous donors, you'll find the donate button on the homepage. There's no limit to your donation, but every little bit helps, and it goes a long way to keeping the show going. Or look us up on iTunes in the Apple Store and write a quick five-star review, which will help keep us afloat in the rankings and force me to continue churning out new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.